Open your Bibles, if you would please, to Daniel chapter 9. The book of Daniel chapter 9. We're in the second half of the book of Daniel. And as we've seen, the book of Daniel was not written to people who were suffering persecution, but rather for those who were living comfortable lives. They were not being harassed in any way, but they were living within an alien culture. And as such, I think it has much to teach us because we are not suffering persecution, but we do live in an alien culture, though we may not think of it that way. In reality, we live in a post-Christian world. How are we supposed to live? So we've seen the book of Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six chapters are the familiar part, the chapters of the book of Daniel, the stories that children usually hear in Sunday school. The second six chapters have visions and dreams and prophecies that many assume are more for scholars and theologians than for the average person. As I've said before, the reality is the two halves have a very strong connection and there is a unity. If we do not learn the lesson in the first six chapters that God is in control of human history, then our imagination, I think, will run wild in the second half of the book. The last story in the first half of Daniel is about Daniel in the lion's den under Darius, who was a Mede. He had already defeated Belshazzar. But then the first vision in chapter 7 actually takes place before that, in the first year of Belshazzar. Um, at that point, as we saw, Daniel may have in fact been in a moral crisis because working under Nebuchadnezzar, even though he was a pagan, he was open to the reality of God and he seemed to be an ethical man, um, Belshazzar was not. And suddenly I think Daniel says, you know, I knew that I could work for a non-Jew, a non-Hebrew, but someone like Belshazzar, I'm not sure that I can do this. How is he to survive under such an evil man? Should he continue to work in the system? What is the right thing to do? And I believe that it is in response to this crisis that we have the visions of chapter 7 and 8. And without going over what we've looked at the past two Sundays, I would point out that what we find is this, and that is that God's interest, his judgment on empires and kingdoms, is based primarily on how they treat the people of God. God is not an anti-imperialist. He's not against empires, okay? He's not against kingdoms. In the earlier visions, we saw that, in fact, these kingdoms will eventually crumble and fall. And it isn't primarily because of their moral defects, because all political systems are morally defective. It is not because of their social or economic factors, which may in fact have come into play. But rather it is that the kingdom of God is slowly but surely progressing. And as it takes over, the kingdoms of this earth will crumble and fall. However, and this is what Daniel needs to learn, in the process, the people of God may suffer. We see the, the kingdom coming. It's described as a, a rock uh, from a mountain that will smash this image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Yeah, but the people of God may suffer. And I think that's what Daniel needs to know. In chapter 7, we read, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them. 
could never imagine that, that the people of God will be defeated by evil. And then later he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over him for a time, times, and half a time. So in the process, and I think this is, this is something that Daniel was, was struggling with, how can I work within this evil system? And God's saying, listen, my kingdom is coming, but in the meantime, there will be systems far more evil who will persecute the people of God. The final word, though, in chapter 7 is, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all his rulers will worship and obey him. One of the hints that we see is that the language that is used beginning in chapter 8 is different. From chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7, unlike the rest of the Old Testament with the portion of Ezra, it's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. And Aramaic was the language of the nations, of the empire. It was the official language. It was the language of diplomacy and, and commerce, which I think gives us a hint that from chapter 2 to chapter 7, uh, God is addressing, if you wish, the people of this earth, the people who are not Jews. And it's like, this is what is happening. I am in control of this. But in chapter 8, verse 1, it goes back to Hebrew, which means at this point, God is speaking to Daniel and is telling him this is the message for the people of God. Used in a different context, but the saying is the medium is the message, the language is the message, and the fact that Daniel switches to Hebrew, I think, should tell us a lot. I think that this is key to understanding these visions. I think other, otherwise, I think we might, well, I think they're difficult anyway but we'll have a much more difficult time. In chapter 7 and 8, Daniel is shown the visions that reveal the reality of empires and kingdoms and God's view of them. But as I said, the shift in chapter 8 shows in detail something about the people of God and specifically what they will suffer, the travails of the people of God. Chapter 9, which we will look at today, is quite different at least until we get to the end of the chapter. It opens with these words, and if you look at chapter 9, the first two verses, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. If you were listening, as Gia read to us today from Jeremiah, the last word, I think, was desolate. That, in fact, God's judgment would come on his people because they'd gone after false gods and the land would be left desolate. But Jeremiah also said, God through Jeremiah said, that this would last for 70 years. And Daniel's been reading the book of Jeremiah and I think other portions of scripture. And he's counting up and it, it, it seems like the 70 years, in fact, could have already happened. We saw in chapter 6 that three times a day, Daniel would open his window, face Jerusalem, and would pray. 
I think our vision of this or our view of this is quite different than what really happened. Because I think for us, praying and scripture are, are not connected. They're, they're like two separate activities. When you read the Bible, when you pray, they're two separate activities. And in a sense, they are. But in reality, they are to go together. We should not imagine that Daniel did not read scripture, that he just prayed. And that the prayer just sort of came out of his heart or out of his head or whatever. Um, again, it's because we separate the two. I think it should be obvious to us as we read the book of Daniel that Daniel's religion was not primarily one of experience or visions, which we might think because half of the book is about visions and actually part of the first part is about dreams and stuff, that we might think it's just about these, these ecstatic experiences that he might have. No, Daniel's religion, his faith, was based in scripture, what God had said. I think we would prefer to imagine that it was one of visions, and isn't this cool that people could have dreams and he knew what they meant, or he'd have visions and then he'd be told what they meant. But in fact, um, no, he read scripture. We want visions rather than reading and rereading and rereading scripture, because after a while, perhaps we get tired of it texts that are so familiar to us. As a result, we may experience a dryness as we read. We may long for something different, something, dare I say, exotic, unusual, different, something exciting. Those who are disappointed with what they have found thus far in their spiritual pilgrimage may in fact begin to look for something apart from Scripture. And so, if that's the case, when we read chapter 9, particularly at the beginning, our view of what happens to Daniel is quite different. The reality is, scripture was very important to Daniel and his fellow exiles. See, they're not in Jerusalem anymore. There's no temple to pray in. There are no altars for them to sacrifice on. They are the people of God. And their system of worship is gone. So what is to take its place? Scripture. It is in Scripture that God spoke to the prophets. And as they read Scripture, it is as though God is speaking to them through the prophets. This is now, because they're no longer in Jerusalem, this is the basis of their faith. So when Daniel prays, He's not at the temple anymore where he might have given an offering for his sin to say, God, forgive me, here's a lamb because I've sinned. That's not happening anymore. But now he reads scripture and he sees that God says, these are the things you're supposed to do. These are the things you're not supposed to do. And Daniel could say, I have sinned. I have not done the things that I should have done. And I've done things I shouldn't do. His prayers come out of scripture. Just a side note, and this is, one would say, perhaps not connected, but um, where did Daniel get the scriptures? Where did he get the book of Jeremiah? From what we know, scriptures were copied. People had copies of scripture, copied by hand. 
And this is where it gets a bit tricky. And I can remember uh, in high school, a teacher doing this, maybe in junior high, where the teacher whispered something in somebody's ear and then they were to whisper it to the next person, the next person. And then by the time it got to the end of the room, they say, okay, what was the message? And it would oftentimes not bear any relation at all to what the teacher had said. And so oftentimes that's how we view scripture. But that's not how the scriptures were copied. It wasn't one to one. It was, for lack of a better way to put it, one to ten. And then of those ten, one to ten. So by the second generation of copies, you have a hundred copies. Okay. If we think it's one to one to one to one, then sure, there could be corruption, there could be mistakes that might come in. But when you have one to ten and then one to ten there, then a comparison will in fact show what the original message was. And if there are any misspellings or words that were omitted, um, I've been working on a text uh, from 17th century Philippines and I, I completely missed the line completely missed that. Well, that's because it's just me. If there were 10 other people, somebody would have caught that and said, oh, oh, you missed that line. So Daniel had a copy of scriptures, as did his fellow exiles. Temples gone, altars are gone, no more sacrifice. It is scripture that they must hold on to, and it is from scripture that they cry out to God. This is how they pray to God. So how does Daniel know how to live? what he should do, what he should not do. Well, when we listen to his praying, it should become very obvious to us, I think painfully obvious, that what he knew, he knew from Scripture. This isn't something he just came up with out of his head. This is something that came to him from Scripture. The whole Jewish community in exile saw that it was the Scriptures, the books of what we call the Old Testament, that kept their tradition, their theology, their worship alive and faithful. There were some prophets among them, living prophetic voices, but for the most part, their main instruction came from scriptures. By the way, when the prophets spoke, he has been reading to us from Jeremiah, we've gone through Isaiah, their sermons are based on the first five books. This is what God said through Moses, do this, don't do this. And God says, listen, I've told you what to do, what not to do, and you've gone your own way. It is during this time, we believe, that the synagogues began to emerge. You've got no temple, so should should your faith become something very intensely personal, just me and God? No, you're part of the people of God. And so the synagogue, which is actually uh, from a Greek word meaning to gather together, This is when they emerged. And the people of God, the Jews, would get together on the Sabbath and they would listen to the scripture as it was read. Then they would pray what they had read. They would sing the Psalms. And then oftentimes somebody would come up and say, okay, this is what this particular passage means. We find this in the book of Acts, which is, I know, hundreds of years later, but this is where the practice begins that Jews, as they are scattered away from Palestine, from the Holy Land, they hold on to scripture. This is their identity, and this is how they worship God. Okay, Okay, let's look at Daniel's prayer, because he reads scripture and then he prays, beginning in verse number three. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Let's just stop there for a minute. So I turn to the Lord. Why? 
why do you turn so I you know I turn why because of what he had read in the book of Jeremiah that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years so Daniel's prayer was a response to what he had read in scripture he is responding to what God said through Jeremiah um, you may remember we've looked at the matter of prayer in a, in a number of series. Prayer is always a response. It's part of a communication, but God begins. God speaks first in scripture, and then we respond in prayer. Oftentimes we may say, I don't know what to pray. And I would simply say, well, have you read scripture? Listen to God first, and then we can respond in prayer. This is the case with Daniel. Because of what God had said through Jeremiah the prophet, Daniel is now responding in prayer. Verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant, For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Some things to note about this prayer. One of the longest prayers recorded in scripture, by the way. First of all, the prominence of the, or the predominance of confession. 
this should not surprise us, but I think in our culture it, it is very surprising because confession means admitting you're wrong. And um, in our culture that's seen as a sign of weakness. We don't want to say, I have sinned, when in fact we have. If one reads scripture, I think it's very difficult not to say, I've sinned, because it's very obvious there that in fact we have done so. And by the way, I don't know where this goes in the sermon, so I'll say it now. In our prayer of confession today, which is from Psalm 106, this was written hundreds, thousands of years ago about the people of Israel, but it still can apply to us today. So as we read it, we're like, oh my, I'm just like the people of Israel. I have forgotten God's mighty acts. I have forgotten to be thankful for what God has done. I have rejected when God has directed me in a particular way. That when we read scripture, I think it should become abundantly clear to us that God is holy and we are not. And that we have sinned. When we come into the presence of a holy God in prayer, I think confession is, I don't want to say automatic, but it is something that happens. I must mention the incident found in Isaiah chapter 6. Let me read it to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. By the way, this is where our hymn, Holy, 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 comes from. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. When we are in the presence of God, confession is something I think that will happen. I think the best illustration is, um, as I get older, my eyesight seems to get worse and worse, and I need more and more light. Well, as we come closer and closer to the light, we can see more clearly who we are. And as we come to God's, into God's presence, he who is perfection, that the closer we get to him, the more that we are aware that I am a man of unclean lips, as Isaiah says. In Daniel's prayer, at least five times, if not six times, we hear confession. In verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Verse 6, the verses 11, 14, and 15. So first of all, the place, the predominance of confession. Secondly, the place of supplication. As much as we hear confession, we hear Daniel asking God for what he felt he needed most. And this we hear five times as well. It begins in verse number three, where he turns and asks God, pleads with him in prayer and petition. And then 17, 18, and then we'll get to verses 20 and 23 in, in a moment. Um, this is a prayer that is motivated by a desire to ask God for something specific. He had read Jeremiah and Jeremiah said in 70 years, Daniel wants to know, is, that, is it 70 years now? Can we go back now? That's what drives the prayer. But 
confession is necessary first because it is admission of guilt. Supplication is a tricky thing because over the years I've had a number of people who have objected to me. They said it's not right to ask God for things because then prayers seem very mercenary that, the, that you're praying because you want something. Um, they've argued that such activity is, is beneath God's people. It's less than spiritual. We should worship God. We can confess our sins and all that. But to ask for something seems rather petty. Um, and without question, some people have reduced God in their thinking to him being a heavenly vending machine into which they put a prayer, pull the thing, and then they get what they want from God. Um, yeah, but that doesn't make it wrong to ask. They're asking in the wrong way, I would say. Stop and think a moment. Consider that in prayer you're entering into a conversation. God has begun the conversation. He who created the universe and sustains it, who is your Father, who loves you beyond what you can imagine, who wants what is best for you, who is trying to change you, to reshape you into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ, who wants to be in communion with you, to have a relationship with you, who has made promises and who keeps his promises. Does asking seem out of place with all that? Daniel prays, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Again, there's, there's no doubt that in fact sometimes our asking is out of line. James tells us this in James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. They're like, okay, so I need to ask God. Next verse. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So there's a question of asking in the right way. But to ask is not wrong. It is not wrong. And so I would suggest to you that when we come to God in prayer as a result of reading scripture, confession should happen and asking as well. And again, as with confession, I wouldn't say it's automatic, but I would say that it is a natural response as we come to God in prayer. When we come to a holy God, we confess our sins. When we come to a gracious and generous father, we ask. The third thing I would point out about Daniel's prayer is that it is a we prayer. Like the Lord's prayer, this is a we prayer. We and us. It's not I, me. Daniel includes himself in the community of believers. It is true that Daniel presents personal confession and supplication, but also those of our kings, our princes, our fathers, all the people of the land. And he confesses their sins as though they were his own. It's not like, you know, those sinners over there, you know, our kings, our princes back in the past, they did terrible things. But I'm a pretty good guy. No, he puts himself in with the people of God. I wonder if that would change our prayers if we came to see ourselves as part of the people of God rather than just as an individual seeking uh, what he or she wants from God. His concern is not primarily for himself, but the people of God. 
Why? This is where scripture, I think, is really critical. Verse number four, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We live in an age in which people think of Jesus as their own personal savior. And I have to think that when someone created that phrase, they, they meant a personal relationship. But I think in a hyper-capitalist age, it, it's my own personal, just mine. And so the idea of me being with the people of God, I think really, really fades from view. In fact, I think it sounds so foreign um, and maybe even offensive. If I were to pray to God that we, the people of the church on Melrose, have sinned, someone might say, well, Damon, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, speak for yourself. But we are the people of God together. And we see this in Daniel's prayer. To Daniel, it's, it's very clear. What are the commands? What are the laws? This is something that is found in Scripture. It's found in the law of Moses. Who are the prophets that were sent by God? Why can he say what's happening to us is because you have scattered us? Because that's what God told Moses he would do if his people turned away from him. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. Daniel refers to what is written in the law and the prophets. By the way, I must tell you, there are some scholars who, who say that this prayer actually wasn't written by Daniel, that this was written by somebody else, because that the Hebrew in certain parts is just too good. You know, it's like, you know, average Hebrew, and then suddenly you've got this really, really tight, um, beautiful Hebrew expressions. And they're like, well, that means Daniel couldn't. No, it's quite the opposite. Daniel's quoting from Scripture. It's not Daniel's words, it's scripture. And so that Hebrew was in fact a beautiful Hebrew and I don't know what his level of competence was in Hebrew, but when he's praying, he's praying at this level and then it's suddenly elevated as he prays the very words that are found in scripture. As we saw in the series on prayer and the Psalms, the book of Psalms is like a toolbox for us. It prepares us. It gives us tools so that we can pray as we should. And I think one of the ways that we can pray is to pray the Psalms themselves. As I mentioned earlier, our prayer of confession from Psalm 106. 106 talked about a time thousands of years ago. And yet we can still apply it to our lives today and say, yeah, we're just like them. I think the Psalms help us when we don't know how we should pray or what to pray for or perhaps more importantly when we don't feel like praying. And it is in scripture that we hear others praying and I think we are encouraged to pray. Some people would say, yes, but Damon, if you start praying what's written in scripture, then it just sort of becomes vain repetition. Well, that's possible. But the reality is, Scripture is the Word of God, and it should guide us as we pray to God. By the way, one of the benefits, I hope, of us reading through the Bible together is not only that we can say at the end of the year, well, I've read through the Bible, 
But in the process, our prayer lives will become stronger because God is speaking to us and we are listening as we read every day together and then we can respond to God in prayer. The fourth thing about Daniel's prayer is that there is actually one specific point to this prayer. In a word, when. When is this going to happen? He confesses his sins and the sins of his people. He asks God, and what he wants to know is, when are you going to take us back to Jerusalem? When is everything going to be restored? Jeremiah said 70 years. Okay, 70 years. But when do you begin counting? Do you begin counting when Daniel and the others were taken to Babylon? Or do you begin counting when later on Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed? Because that was some years later. Where is zero? You know, where do you begin counting? And then 70 years. And then will this really happen? I mean, God keeps his promises, but it hasn't happened yet. So when, in fact, will this happen? Daniel, I think, wants to pray that God has not forgotten his people. He has good reason to. But Daniel prays that, in fact, he has not. So now we come to the last part of the book of Daniel, chapter 9. And it is the answer, and I would put the air quotes, the answer to his prayer. Um, I don't think it gives Daniel an answer that he can understand, or I would argue perhaps that even we do not fully understand. Look at verse number 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill. By the way, you see there confession and supplication asking. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, that's in chapter 8, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Now, some things to consider before we go on. The answer comes in the midst of his prayer. Daniel's not finished praying, and the answer has already been given. Verse number 23, as soon as you began to pray. Gabriel appears to Daniel, as he did in chapter 8. And he comes to give him insight and understanding. There's one thing that I want to... I'm unhappy with the NIV here because it refers to him as highly esteemed. But in other English translations, I think most translations, he's referred to as greatly loved or greatly beloved. Daniel is addressed by his name as Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others had been. But he alone is called greatly loved or greatly beloved. Now is the answer. Verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will cut off, will be cut off, and will have nothing. 
The people of the ruler will, who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Side note, as unhappy as I am with the NIV that they have highly esteemed versus greatly loved, I'm very happy that it, they have sevens. Other translations would have weeks. So 70 weeks instead of 70 sevens. And that I think they're, they're adding something to it that I think perhaps may be confusing. So I'm glad that they do that. So what does the answer mean? I haven't a clue. I must tell you, I don't know. I don't know. Books and books and books have been written on the 70 weeks of Daniel. Um, And these people probably know a lot more than I do, but I think in some ways they may have missed the point. Because what I take away from this is that God wants to assure his people about the future, that he's going to take care of them. But he doesn't want them to become preoccupied with the mathematics or the calendar of it. So people are trying to figure, okay, 77, that's 490 years, you know, weeks of years, and then 62, and then the 7, and then the 1, and then the middle. And I think we are doing exactly what God doesn't want us to do. He doesn't want us to get wrapped up in the math of it and trying to figure it out, but rather to trust he knows exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. I don't think Daniel understood this any more than we do. But he wasn't supposed to. What he was supposed to understand in response to his prayer is that God's got it covered. We saw that in the first six chapters when Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food. When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he couldn't remember when Nebuchadnezzar uh, would, would become like an animal. And it goes on and on. We are told time and time again, Daniel is told God is in control. And more than that, he is in wise control. It isn't simply that God's this giant computer that knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. God is in control and he will take care of his people. As Gabriel speaks of the future... Daniel and all of God's people, and that includes us, are to be assured that God is still in wise control. And we can pray with confidence in our loving Father through the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the power of the Spirit. You see, for Daniel and his fellow exiles, it was a new world. Things had changed dramatically. They're no longer living in the promised land. They now live in foreign territory. They are aliens in Babylon. No more temple. No more place to sacrifice. No place to meet with God in a personal way. The temple was the place where they were supposed to go and meet with God. What happens in Daniel is a change of thinking, which I think is important It's important for us to grab a hold of as well. It is that scripture is a place where we encounter God. We don't have to come to this building to pray. 
Daniel didn't have to go to the temple which no longer existed to pray. He didn't have to go there to hear God. He hears God in scripture. I think the exiles came to realize something that we may have forgotten. And that is that in listening and in reading of scripture, they came to hear the living voice of God who spoke to his prophets and priests. We are members of the new covenant. And the center of the Christian faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And people want to have an encounter with Christ. That's okay. I think we can. We do. But they, don't, they want to do it without reading. Um, they, they want to do it without the Bible. Let me ask you, how will you know anything about Jesus apart from Scripture? It's as we listen to Scripture that we encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, in our reading from the New Testament today, we might hear him say, come and take my yoke upon you. You who are burdened. But a few verses earlier, we heard him pronouncing woe on cities. The, The picture now begins to sort of flesh out. It isn't just somebody saying nice things. It's someone saying things that are difficult for us and things that sound, yeah, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, it's there in Scripture. It's there in the Gospels. If we want to know who Jesus Christ is, if we want to meet him, it is in Scripture. C.S. Lewis said one of the signs of a great book is that you can read it over and over and over again. That's what Scripture is supposed to be for us. As we read the scriptures, do we learn of Jesus? Do we hear him? I said earlier that some people have, been, have become disappointed in their spiritual walk, their pilgrimage. One of the things that has discouraged them is that they are overly familiar with scripture. And if you were to say to them, you need to read your Bible, they're like, yeah, I've done that. But the reality is, That is where God speaks to his people. Daniel saw it. And as he read Jeremiah, what does he do? He prays. And God responds to him. Daniel doesn't begin the conversation. God does. And then Daniel responds in prayer. And then God, through Gabriel, gives him an answer. An answer that I would say is less than satisfying. Because all these centuries later, we're not quite sure what the answer was the details of it but the answer was in fact Daniel I'm in control I know what's going to happen I am in control and as God's people I think by God's grace we should embrace that and acknowledge it let's pray together Our Father, today as we have come to worship you, we have heard your word read to us and preached to us. By your grace, may we now respond in prayer. May we acknowledge who we are, that we have sinned against you this past week. We have done so in our prayer of confession. May we ask you, may we thank you. This we have done in our prayer of petition thanksgiving.
as we leave this place and as we are apart the next week, may we remember that you are talking to us all the time, just not listening. You've done so much for us. You've been so gracious to us. We should respond with thanksgiving. You have spoken to us in scripture. We should listen and respond in prayer. May we realize that on our own we can't do this. We simply cannot. I think more than that, we will not. So we ask you that your spirit would move our hearts and our lives. That we would in fact turn to you in prayer. Moment by moment, day by day. That we would ask you because you are the source of all things. That we would thank you because all that we have comes from you. And that we would acknowledge that we are less than perfect. We are sinners. I thank you for Daniel's example. May we follow it. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave. Pray for Dan and Lonnie as they may be traveling even as we pray. That you would bring them back to us safely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.